My name is Dana Levin. Welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast, a forum where we explore the history, current operations, and research-based future of exploration medicine. Each episode, we'll draw lessons from past explorers, sit down with those currently supporting expeditioners, and talk with the top researchers pushing back the boundaries of what's possible for human physiology. Along the way, we'll cover the physiology of putting a human body into environments it is not prepared for, and discuss the guidelines and research behind how we keep those explorers healthy. Together, we'll travel to the farthest extremes of human experience and learn what it will take to go beyond. Periodically, our listeners submit their own mini-episodes intended to share practical tips and quick topic reviews for expedition practitioners. This week is one of those times. So I'd like to introduce you to Jason David, an emergency medicine resident at University Medical Center in Las Vegas. He covers the unique challenges of how to deal with a cardiac arrest in spaceflight. So let's get right to the heart of the matter, shall we? Hi there, my name is Jason David and I am an emergency medicine intern at University Medical Center Las Vegas. Before we start, I should mention that this segment of the podcast are my own opinions and do not represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force, UNLV, or any of my future employers. So, for this segment of the episode, I'm going to talk to you about one of the most important skills that any physician needs to have, running a code for a cardiac arrest. There are several major differences concerning how one would adapt the advanced cardiac life support measures in a microgravity environment, so we'll proceed through the 2015 ACLS algorithm and then talk about any key differences as they come up. As we all know, astronauts are typically supremely fit, intensively screened individuals. However, there are occupational risks that may lead to ACLS being employed, such as electrocutions from equipment failures, hypoxia from air leaks, and cardiac effects of decompression sickness, just to name a few. I will note that a cardiac arrest has never happened in orbit, and due to the intensive screening that I mentioned earlier, has a very low likelihood of happening. Therefore, these ideas are all more of a contingency plan than anything else. Additionally, mankind is working towards a time in our future where space will not be limited to a few extremely fit, screened individuals. As the civilian space sector and tourism industries grow, space medicine will have to plan for more emergent medical contingencies on less healthy populations. Concerning cardiac arrest in particular, there are a multitude of physiologic factors that are different in the microgravity of orbit than they are on planet Earth. Here are just a few cardiac-relevant ones. Firstly, humans will often display a lower baseline pulse rate and lower diastolic blood pressure. This means that ischemic symptoms might not be apparent in an astronaut until he or she would be participating in vigorous activity. Second, humans in space experience a cephalid fluid shift. This means that the fluid distribution inside a human being shifts towards being concentrated in the upper body relative to the fluid distribution on planet Earth. The human body has evolved physiologic mechanisms to counteract the force of gravity pulling our body fluid down into our lower extremities. In space, we lose that constant pull of gravity, so our body's natural mechanisms to circulate our body fluids back up to the rest of our body become the dominant force. Without terrestrial gravity to counteract the force, we experience a fluid shift, resulting in puffy faces, puffy arms, and congestion, among other issues. Now, as an aside, the effects of long-term spaceflight on arrhythmia generation are still as of yet unknown, but there is currently no evidence to suggest that spaceflight is any more arrhythmogenic than any other environment. This was theorized early on in long-term spaceflight, but so far none of this is borne out. 
the NASA Human Research Program roadmap does list this as an open investigation, but evidence so far is moving towards closing out erythmogenicity of microgravity as a significant factor in the health of astronauts. So, let's get started. Your presentation is this. You are the crew medical officer aboard the International Space Station. Near you is a 38-year-old male astronaut who is fixing an electrical circuit. You hear a loud pop and see a flash. You turn around and see the astronaut is floating unconscious across the module. Your fellow crewmates also saw the accident and have addressed the electrical issue, so the scene is safe. How do you proceed? The clinical signs of acute cardiac arrest are pretty much the same in orbit as they are on Earth. The lack of pulse and lack of breathing would clue you in to the need to start basic lifesaver interventions and proceed to an area where you can start advanced cardiac life support interventions as rapidly as possible. You'd want to place with items such as vital science and heart rhythm monitoring equipment, a defibrillator, a way to provide 100% oxygen, ACLS medications, and the equipment needed to start an intravenous access for the delivery of drugs and equipment to manage and secure an airway so the patient can breathe. So the first thing to start on your floating patient is adequate chest compressions. Now while we take this for granted, chest compressions on planet Earth are actually facilitated by our being able to use gravity and our weight to brace and bear down on our patient. This is obviously much more difficult when floating in microgravity. Essentially, imagine trying to do chest compressions while suspended in the middle of a swimming pool. Now several techniques have actually been developed in microgravity to help chest compressions each with varying levels of efficacy in achieving the American Heart Association compression standards. These techniques are the handstand technique, the Evitz-Busumano technique, and the reverse bear hug technique. The handstand technique was found to be the most effective in terms of compression depth and rate. This is basically when a provider places his hands on the patient's chest and pushes the patient into the wall of the module. The provider would then use the lack of gravity to flip up and brace his or her feet on the opposite wall of the module, and thus pin his or herself and the patient together across the module. The provider would then use their elbows and knees, bending them and straightening them to deliver compressions through their outstretched arms and into the patient. While effective, this patient position does not really allow for much mobility, and it would be hard to transport a patient to a different location if needed. It should be noted as well that this is the only technique that has been validated on an animal model in the microgravity environment. The evitz rusumano technique is a novel chest compression method uniquely possible in microgravity. Instead of bracing the patient against the wall, like in the handstand technique, the provider actually straddles the patient, interlocking his or her legs in the patient's back to aid in muscular stability. Note, the patient and the provider are free-floating in the middle of the module. Theoretically, this would allow for movement of the patient and the provider while delivering adequate chest compressions. While studies have shown that providers can maintain the necessary rate of 100 compressions in a minute for the evitz rusumano technique, they have considerable difficulty actually achieving the adequate depth of these compressions. However, it's also worth mentioning that while inadequate depth of compressions would mean inadequate circulation of blood on planet Earth, in the environment of microgravity, the virtual lack of gravity would mean that less force is actually needed to circulate that blood. Therefore, what might count as an inadequate chest compression on Earth might actually be an adequate chest compression in terms of depth in microgravity. So, point being, we don't actually know how effective the efforts Rusimano compression technique might be. The lower compression depth might not even be an issue. Notably, this position is quite tiring as it requires sustained lower body endurance, and much of the force generated is not from core but from upper body strength. The reverse bear hug is quite self-explanatory. 
Basically, the provider assumes their position, formerly known as the Heimlich Maneuver. However, the provider squeezes on the patient's sternum, not the abdomen. Like the Everett's Rusimano, studies have shown difficulty with achieving compression depth, but the ability to meet compression rate was easily achieved among subjects. Now, our initial reaction will probably be to start handstand chest compressions on our patient and ask one of our crewmates to grab the crash cart and bring it over. After all, that's what we do on Earth, right? Well, you can't exactly do that on a space station, particularly the International Space Station, because of the particular constraints placed on medical equipment. Let's take the defibrillator, for instance. On Earth, delivering shocks with defibrillator is as easy as hooking the patient up to the monitor, analyzing the rhythm, and delivering shocks for V-flib and pulses VTAC. Everyone stays clear of the patient who is grounded to the floor, and it's all good. In the environment of a space station, however, it's not that easy. Patients and defibrillators need to be electrically isolated from the rest of the structure, so as not to accidentally cause damage to other critical, super-sensitive space control electronics or transfer shock to other crew members. Remember, we're not on planet Earth. Therefore, there is no actual electrical ground for us to channel the electricity from shocks into. Aboard the ISS, the Medical Restraint System, or MRS, is designed for this electrical isolation, and it is permanently deployed in the U.S. laboratory module near the locker containing all the medical supplies. This essentially means that the patient must come to the MRS, not the other way around. The MRS also holds the patient in place and provides a structure for the provider to anchor to while caring for the patient so that neither of them will float away in microgravity. There, equipment such as a pulse oximeter, a deployable EKG, airway adjuncts, oxygen, the AED, and medications can be used as needed. However, there are no ICU-style monitors that most terrestrial providers would be familiar with, and there is no method currently in place to directly transmit information to the ground. Of note, the off-the-shelf defibrillators need to be modified for spaceflight. Therefore, insulation and electromagnetic interference shielding must be added to protect sensitive avionics from damaging electromagnetic interference pulses. Radiation shielding must also be added to almost all electronics in orbit to protect them against background radiation. Special modifications must be added to prevent degradation of both electronics and especially batteries which can release toxic gases into the closed-loop air circulation system of the station's atmosphere. Using the MRS, validation studies have shown that non-physician crew members and test personnel can currently deploy and deliver the first defibrillation shock within two minutes of calling a code. Another factor to consider in space resuscitation is the administration of medications, typically through an intravenous route, as the patient would be unconscious and unable to take PO medications. This involves the process of actually acquiring intravenous access, and one might think that this valid shifting of blood would engorge the vasculature, making the acquisition of intravenous access easy. However, it's actually the overall body fluid, both intravascular and extravascular, that shifts, causing an edemis picture at first. In fact, many astronaut physicians have expressed difficulty at acquiring IV access in microgravity, let alone non-medically trained astronauts. Moreover, the risk of free needles in blood from misplaced intravenous attempts floating off rather than running to the ground with gravity makes intravenous access less of an attractive option for drug administration. Therefore, in a code situation, Intraosseous access to the tibia or greater tuberosity of the humerus would likely be the easiest methods of access and gravity, with medications being followed by a pressure bag bolus as one cannot rely on gravity to drive fluids and medications hanging from a typical IV bag. One other difference with drug administration is the need for a bubble filter. On Earth, gravity pulls the denser fluid to the bottom of an IV bag or syringe, whereas less dense air bubbles rise to the top. In orbit, however, gravity can't help, and air bubbles tend to distribute themselves throughout the volume of a syringe or IV bag, the administration of which could have less than desirable consequences for our patients, such as an air embolism. 
So, back to the case. We escorted our patient to the medical restraint system using either the evitz risimano to compression technique to deliver compressions in route, or more likely, we simply rushed them over to the MRS and started compressions there. At the MRS, we have our crew member properly restrained with heart monitors in place, oxygen being delivered to passively oxygenate our patient, and interosseous access established to provide medications. A crew member has a bag valve mask on him to deliver oxygen, and CPR is being delivered at the same 15 to 2 compression to ventilation ratio as on Earth, except our provider delivering life-saving compressions is suspended in a handstand-like position over the patient with his or her hands on the patient's chest. The EKG shows that the patient is in VFib from his high-voltage injury. From here, the code essentially remains the same pattern of compressions, analyze, shock, repeat, and the administration of epinephrine and amiodarone as necessary. It should be noted that the code will likely not be directed by the crew. The crew would start and follow a checklist called Mission Control, and a ground-based flight surgeon would assume control via a video-audio downlink to direct the code and authorize actions. However, communications may be interrupted for a myriad of reasons. This means that the crew would have to be able to operate on their own for the duration of the interruption. Moreover, in exploration missions where a comm delay is unavoidable, real-time decision-making for the code will be a necessity. So what about an advanced airway? Well, per AHA guidelines, placing an advanced airway can be a significant interruption to chest compressions. But assuming that the patient could not protect his airway, what would you do? And furthermore, transport back to the surface of planet Earth is hardly a smooth ride with our current technology. Therefore, to ready a patient for transport back to the surface, a secure airway would likely be necessary to protect that stricken crew member from the dynamic forces of re-entry. One form of secure airway placement is direct laryngoscopy. Now, direct laryngoscopy is hard for physicians, let alone medical staff, let alone doing it in microgravity. Therefore, the kind of airway adjunct of choice in orbit would probably be some sort of superglottic airway, either an LMA or perhaps a King airway in the future. Still, on the International Space Station, the tools needed to provide to perform an endotracheal intubation and various superglottic airway devices are available for physician crew members. If one were to intubate, the airway might actually be easier to secure due to the effects of microgravity, where the airway would show less of a likelihood to actually collapse on itself. Although auscultation might not be as reliable of aboard a noisy spacecraft, other confirmatory methods such as end-tidal CO2 monitors and esophageal bulbs would be helpful. Interestingly, the fluid dynamics of saliva and secretions are different in microgravity, with secretions tending to adhere to the surfaces of the oropharyngeal airway due to surface tension rather than pool at the bottom due to gravity. A single-handed vacuum should be used to remove most of these secretions. After repeating the ACLS algorithm for one cycle, the patient has returned of spontaneous circulation, or ROSC. Now what? At this point, the physiology is pretty similar. We would maintain the oxygen saturation above 94%. We would treat the patient's hypertension, if present, with a fluid bolus via the interosseous route. For transport back to the terrestrial medical facility, there might be some merit in trying to obtain IV access in a more controlled setting. We would also initiate targeted temperature management if needed, i.e. if the patient continued to be unresponsive. Other things to consider in a resuscitation attempt in space are the loss of factors we take for granted due to the loss of gravity and the resource-limited environment of orbit. I could think of six factors, but there are many more. Firstly, maintaining situational awareness of equipment would be extremely important. Unused tools, airway adjuncts, spent medications, pad wrappers, and wires, essentially anything unsecured, will not reliably sit at bedside. Instead, they will float away in microgravity. Imagine how dangerous it would be to have any of these free-floating needles, blood, or any equipment from failed IV attempts floating around aimlessly in a closed environment. The second issue would be supplies. 
Resources aboard a spacecraft are extremely scarce. The current cost to send one kilogram of equipment into orbit is approximately $10,000 U.S., which severely limits the supplies one can take into space, medical or otherwise. There may only be a set amount of times that the ACLS algorithm can be run until there are no more medications or supplies to use, and a malfunctioning piece of equipment may not be able to be replaced or repaired. So at what point does the crew make the decision regarding the treatment and resource management? A third issue to consider would be manpower. What if two people were injured? What sorts of adaptations would be needed to provide emergency medical care with a reduced crew? A fourth issue to consider would be an evacuation of the postcode patient. So how would you transport someone like this who might still be unconscious aboard the Soyuz or even the Orion, both of which are pretty rough rides to say the least? Fifth, what would you do with the dead body? If the code were unsuccessful, where would the body be stored? Factors to consider here are both minimizing psychological impact to the crew, as well as preventing contamination of the rest of the vessel by a decomposing body. A sixth issue to consider would be psychological impact to the crew. How would you help the mental state of a crew that has just lost a member? This is a high-performance environment, and peak mental condition is necessary for a successful and safe mission. So how do we help the crew cope? As you can see, the same basic principles of a cardiac resuscitation on Earth apply to a resuscitation in space. Protect the airway. Make sure he can breathe. Adjust the patient's circulatory dysfunction, the cardiac arrest, with the adequate chest compressions and electricity as soon as possible. As far as we've seen from animal models, the physiology really works the same as well. Success, like with many endeavors in medicine, will pretty much come down to practice, comfort with the procedures, and familiarity with the equipment and the environment. And that's all I've got. Thanks for sticking with me till the end. And if anyone listening to this has any corrections, comments, or addendums, I'd love to hear them and more. Thanks to Dr. Levin for letting me help with this project. You are quite welcome, Jason. Thank you for your contribution. Links to more information will be posted on the show website, explorationmedicine.com. Once again, my name is Dana Levin, and thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. A special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker and Emily Stratton, and to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. Music is written and recorded by David Keough. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And, as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.